It's a good thing we're in a church. I hope no one's taking bets on to see who will win the race to get out of here with the kids. But um, if you don't know, my name is Kyle. I'm the youth minister here, and um, I'm not Nate, obviously. And don't worry, I usually don't dress like this, but people have been saying, wow, you're wearing a tie, or you're, you're dressed nice. And I said, don't worry, I don't have any clean jeans, so I was stuck with dress pants. That's why I look nice today. Um, but I've been thinking a lot, uh, because school's getting ready to start, and being the youth minister, I'm excited for that, because I get out of the, the rush of summer and camps and all sorts of activities back into a regular schedule of school. I know it stinks for you guys that are going to school, but I like it. And uh, I've been thinking about graduates lately. Um, and, and they haven't been here for a while, but most of you know Renata Sterlich. Um, she went off to training again. And the reason I was thinking about her was because uh, her mom added us to, my wife and I, to a, a group on Facebook that gives all the updates on, on her letters and phone calls with Melissa and Renato. And so it's been. It's been pretty cool, but um, I remember the last big trip I think she went on with us, with the youth group, we went a couple years ago to Dare to Share down in St. Charles, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis, and um, that was a fun trip, and it was probably a, a little irritating for the kids for the trip down, because it happened to fall on April 1st. And me being me, I decided, you know what? I'm going to play an April Fool's joke on these kids, these ornery kids. And so I did. And I showed them a picture. And I didn't speak very much. I, I acted kind of grumpy and down. And I didn't speak very much for, for quite a while. I was impressed with myself that I was able to stay quiet all the way to Hannibal. Um, but I showed them a picture. And you guys won't be able to see it very well. But uh, when this happened... It, uh, we didn't really have the phones we do now, so we don't have a digital form. We just have a printed form. And you can ask me about it later, but this is a red Ford Ranger that looks just like mine. Uh, but it was a year older and a different interior. This belonged to my brother. And he, he rolled it. He, he rolled it um, when I was a sophomore in high school. And I passed this picture around, and there's no date on the picture, luckily, and it looks just like mine. And they were like, oh, no, are you okay? And Christine was doing the talking for me because I was trying not to laugh in the front. But she was like, oh, yeah, he's fine, but he's just a little upset because this happened just the other day. And so the kids were all kind of, they were behaving, and maybe I should do April Fool's jokes on them more because they behaved really well all the way to Hannibal. But I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore, so I had to tell them. I had to tell them it was just a joke. And, of course, the boys laughed, and the girls are like, you're so, you're so mean. But the, the boys thought it was hysterical, and that's just the way, that's just the, way the genders work, really. But um, I just did the same joke years before to my roommate, his girlfriend, and to Christine. And, of course, my roommate thought it was hysterical, and the girls thought I was just a jerk. But I tell you that story to tell you this story about my brother rolling his truck. It's one of those times I can remember exactly where I was. I was a sophomore in high school. And back then, it was just Carthage High School because Laharp and Carthage hadn't consolidated yet. And I was in one of the science classes. It was an ag science class with Mr. Uh, Sam DeCounter. He was my ag professor, and he taught this class. And he took the same road that I would to school, and he said, Hey, did your brother roll his truck? I said, Not that I know of. And so I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And he said, Well, I passed him walking along the side of the highway with his truck in the ditch. And I was like, That's not good. So I waited until he went to the front in class, and I don't condone this at all. Kids. 
I pulled my phone and I texted my brother, did you roll your truck? I don't condone that. Don't text in class. But he said, yeah. And that was it. Yeah, no explanation, nothing like that. So I called my mom at lunchtime, and they told me the story. And he had this little, the, the window, the roof was so crushed. I mean, it, it was lucky that he was at that time real skinny and, and limber, and he just kind of ducked down, and the roof caved in, and he crawled out of a crawl space in the window that I just don't know how he did it, even how skinny he was. But he got out, and he was fine. They took him to Macomb. They did a scan. They found a spot uh, in the scan on his head. And I jokingly said, well, it turned out to be his brain later. But uh, uh, it was just a little blimp on the scan. But it was a concern enough that they airlifted him to Peoria, and he had to wear the most uncomfortable neck brace, and he just wished anybody could help him out of that. I tell you that story to tell you this story. 2009, spring of 2009, it was my turn to roll a vehicle. And it was the Super Beast, my Jeep Cherokee 1999 classic. Four-wheel drive, belonged to my mom and everything. I love that Jeep. Nothing, in my opinion, I don't care who you are, my opinion, there's no four-wheel drive like a Jeep's. I loved it, and I love going off-roading, but this isn't how I wanted to go off-roading. I rolled it on my way to church on the Lake Linda Blacktop, and the old Lake Linda, Lake Linda Blacktop, when it was that bottom that goes past Lake Linda, it was used to be all asphalt, and it would flood down there, and it, was, it already flooded, and it washed up a bunch of dirt across the road, waters went down, but it was raining that day, and so that mud looked just like the rest of the road. And, of course, I was a cheap college student at this time going to John Wood. And uh, so I was cutting corners wherever I could and didn't realize how bald my tires were. But I hit that mud and I started fishtailing. And I, I would kind of save out of it. And it would go to the other side, save out of it. And finally I did 180 and went straight to the ditch. And the ground was so soft that tires sunk in. And that's what rolled me. And this whole time, of course, me being a young college student... I will not repeat any of the things that were going through my head at this time because it wasn't very Christian-like at the time because I was scared half to death. And so it finally came to a stop, and I don't know how. I just unbuckled real quickly, and I was standing where my driver's window used to be. And the only thing that was on the outside of the vehicle was this old NIV Bible. This was the only thing thrown out of the vehicle. I mean, I was fine, not even a bruise. But you can still see the mud and everything from it, and I hope there's no more pieces of glass in here now that I'm picking that up, but, uh, so I started making them phone calls, and I was freaking out, and I called, I called the, I called the youth minister at Burnside, tell them, hey, I'm not going to be there, could you pray for me, this is why, and um, I, I called my parents, and then they got me a number to a tow truck, and then I had to call the sheriff's office, and so it was a wreck, and so they came out, and everybody came out, and, and, uh, and the sheriff was asking me, did you hit your head, and of course, during that time, I was thinking of my brother's Rick, and I was like, well, what do you think I said? No, I didn't hit my head. I actually did hit my head, but it wasn't too bad. But uh, I'm like, I'm not going to go and wear a neck brace like that. I'm not going to be airlifted to Peoria. So I'm like, no, I don't condone that either. If you hit your head, tell him. But I didn't want to go through that. But I started thinking about all the people I called. Who do you think was the first person I called? Parents, maybe. I mean, that, that's a very good guess. That would be a good answer. No, I called Brig Dion at Burnside and said, hey, I'm not going to be at church. I need prayers, uh, And uh, which is, is who I called first and then mom and dad. Well, I called mom because I figured dad might be angry. Mom would be more, <laughs> much nicer in this situation. But I called the people who would help 
with my spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being. And I, I called for those people I trusted and wanted to help. I tell you that story to tell you a part of the story. See, we're going to continue our, our story study, our, our study of the story, a 31-week series over a, a book called The Story, and it's just a novelization of the Bible in 31 chapters. And today we're going to be talking about Exodus and, and God's people and a time where they were crying out for help. They were going to the person that they, the, the only person left that could help them with any situation. But before we start talking about that, I want to give you a recap of last week a little bit. Uh, last week we talked about Joseph and the, uh, you know, Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, he would have fit in great in the 90s with all those windsuits that had all the neon colors and everything, and how his brothers didn't like him, and how they, they, they were jealous of him, he was his father's favorite son, and they didn't like him, so they, they wanted to kill him, and then instead they sent him into slavery, and he became a prisoner, and then he became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, through all this stuff, God had a plan for him, and God used him to help his people, and so his brothers came to Egypt needing help during a famine, a time of hardship in the, in the country. And Egypt had prepared, thanks to Joseph's help. And Joseph could have, could have punished him, could have gotten his revenge. But instead, he told his brothers who he was and asked them to bring all the family to Egypt. And they didn't leave. They stayed there. And for 400 years, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the sons of Israel stayed in Egypt. Now, in Exodus chapter 1, that's where we're going to start, and I'm going to try to be quicker than, as quick as I can. Uh, usually I don't go too long, but as I was doing this, I'm like, oh, Nate gave me a call. Could you do this sermon? I said, yeah, what is it? And he goes, it's going to be Exodus 1 through 17. Oh, boy. All right. So I'm going to try to condense it as much as I can and try to get to the main points. But we start off in Egypt Exodus chapter 1, and there's a new pharaoh, uh, which I'd hope so, or else that'd be a really old dude. But he, he, it's a new pharaoh, knows nothing, cares nothing about Joseph and his people. Uh, and, and, and who can blame him, really? I mean, if you think about it, um, I think my generation, my generation is going to be one of the last generations that had a true connection based off of relatives with World War II. I mean, my grandpa was a World War II vet for the Navy, um, heard some stories, got to re listen to a lot of stories from Grandma, who'd share stories nonstop. It was just get, go to Grandma's house and grab a thing of ice cream, sit down, and just open your ears, because she's going to just tell you all sorts of stories. And, and I loved it. And so, I, I mean, World War II still had a good connection with my generation, and it might with your guys' generation, too, with great-grandparents, but, uh, I mean, that, that generation that went through that is almost gone. And so after that, it's going to be a little different. I mean, think of it like this. Think of the beginning of our country, French and Indian War. How important is the French and Indian War to us? Uh, we breeze through that chapter in school. Think of it even further. How, how important to us is something that happened in England before America was even discovered? Not as important. So I can't really blame Pharaoh for forgetting about Joseph 400 years earlier. But here's where he went wrong. He saw the Hebrews as a threat. He thought, he was thinking, 
Egypt, and, and there might be a political connection today, but I'm not going to get into it. He saw the Hebrews as a threat to Egypt. Egypt was his first priority, and he thought there are so many of these Hebrews that if we go to war, they will side with our enemy and take over our country. So he decided to make a plan, and he was going to have his slave masters, his taskmasters, force the Hebrews into hard labor. He said, okay, we're going to, we're going to punish them into submission, uh, and we're going to work them so hard that, uh, that maybe their population will go to a stall because they, they'll be too busy and they can't reproduce or anything like that, but it didn't help. Uh, and the Hebrews still were flourishing, even though they were going through hard labor, uh, physical slavery. And so he, or, uh, Pharaoh went one step further and he said, okay, he saw them as pests. And he's going to do some pest control. Anybody ever have ant problems? And I'm not talking about the crazy ant you meet every, every year at a family reunion or anything. I'm talking about ants, the insects. By the way, my ants, there might be some crazy, but they're, they're awesome. I love my ants. But uh, not the insects. We moved into a house just down the street in July. And a couple weeks in, we had terrible ant problems in the kitchen. So we were looking at home remedies and things to repel them, and so we were putting peppermint extract underneath where they were coming from and, and thinking about cayenne pepper, but they would just find new areas to come into the kitchen. So we finally said, forget it, let's go get some non-spill gel traps. So we put three or four of them throughout the kitchen, and they were loving that stuff, and then we haven't had a problem because they killed the colony with it. So I didn't want to kill the colony, but it was one of those things, these are a pest. But that's on a different level than this. Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 1, he tells the midwives this. Exodus chapter 1, 15 through 16, says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra, and the other was named Pah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see, the, uh, see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So he's going from pest control to animal control, kind of. I'm thinking of, uh, before we, uh, anybody deer hunters in here? I know Alan Stryker is. A few deer hunters. Um, a few years ago, before that disease came through, we had a pretty good population of deer and we had the January late seasons that were antlerless only, uh, going for does. Because if you take out a doe next year, you're not only missing that doe, but the fawn or twins or even triplets that she could have, it was a way to control the population. Pharaoh's kind of doing this. He's thinking, let's try to control the population. But the thing is, he's treating human beings like animals here. This is far more morbid, far more just disgusting, just crazy. Uh, terrifying. But luckily the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh, and they didn't do it. And when he, Pharaoh asked them about it, he said, well, they're, the Hebrew women are much sturdier than the Egyptian woman. They're giving birth on their own and before we even get there. So we, we can't get to the baby. And so Pharaoh went a step further, and he said, fine. In chapter 22 of Exodus, or uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he says, then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born, you were to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you should keep alive. Cast into the Nile. Man, the Nile, that's where... Have you ever heard of the Nile crocodile? There's a lot of crocodiles in the Nile. Nile is a pretty dangerous place. And that's where he's saying, just cast the babies in there. They'll drown, and they will be crocodile food. It's crazy. 
And, and we try, like, we try to think that we are not like that anymore, and, and we're not to that extent, but I mean, there are different ways that we view and, and judge and criticize and, and keep our fellow human beings at a distance. And there are different ways. It's, it's same world, just different attitudes, different ways of persecuting people. And there's still things like this, maybe not on this scale, but they still happen. I mean, think World War II, think Holocaust. What happened to the Jews during that? It was still barbaric and just impossible to think of. But this still didn't stop things. Enter Moses. We all know him. Enter Moses. He was born, and his mom loved him so much that she hid him for three months and, and she hit him as long as she could. It got to a point to where it doesn't say if the Egyptians were searching too much in her neighborhood or if Moses was just too much of a crier. I, I don't know what the situation was, but it said, says that she couldn't hide him anymore. So she put him in a basket and hid him in the reeds amongst the Nile River and, and the safe ferry where he wouldn't float away, but maybe someone would find him, and someone did. Moses' sister hid a distance away to observe the situation and Pharaoh's daughter herself came down to bathe in the Nile. And she heard Moses crying. And she said, well, this is, this is a Hebrew baby. But she felt compassion on him. She felt pity on him, hearing that cry. I mean, and just think of that. It's just like a motherly instinct. It's just something natural, especially for women. You hear that baby cry, or you see a baby, and, and you just want to protect it. You just want to hold it. I think of... I mean, every, every time Liz is here, it seems like she has one of your babies in her hands. I just think of that kind of situation, and it's just, and her maternal instincts kicked in, and Moses' sister came and said, do you want me to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby? And she said, yes. And so Moses' mom was the one that her sis, his sister got to nurse him and raise him for a time again. And so she's still with her son, and then when he's old enough, she was taken in by the Pharaoh's daughter as her son. So he's going to be raised, he's taught about being a Hebrew, and then he's raised as an Egyptian royalty. Uh, he's just, uh, goes from a gutter rat to a prince, pretty much. Raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's saved. And this is very important because God uses people. Uh, he, he's going to use people like this, and he's got a big plan for Moses. And, and so we, we pick up when Moses is older. And he sees his people, and he, it calls him his people. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It says, it's Now it, it came about that those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren, and he looked at their, la their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of the, his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and said, Surely this matter has become known. And it did. The Pharaoh... When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
And I mean, the story goes on. It talks about how he meets his future wife at that well, and he helps her out and meets his father-in-law. But it says that he saw the Hebrews as his brethren. He knew he was a Hebrew. Even though he was raised as an Egyptian, he knew he was a Hebrew. And he saw the Hebrews as his people. And so he thought, I'll, I'll step in. Found out that the crime was known and that, uh, that he needed to run for his life. So he ran to Midian. And if you look at the Red Sea, you know, it's kind of like a peace sign. You have the two fingers of the Red Sea. And he went, Midian's located on, on the east, like east of both fingers. So you got the peace sign and he goes all the way around to Midian. And, and that's important for later, but I'm having a technical difficulty. The earpiece popped off. But he's going to Midian, as far away, comfortably, outside of Egypt as he can get. And, and there he gets married, and he becomes a shepherd and watches the flocks. And in this time, the people of Israel are still in trouble. Chapter 2, still, verse 23 through 25, it says, Now it came about that the course of these many days the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because the bondage uh, of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Here's an important part. The Israelites cried out for help. They were desperate. They were being slaves. They were beaten. Their sons were being killed if they were caught by the Egyptians. They were going through a hard time of persecution, so they cried out to the only person that they could cry out to to help, and that was God. And even more important than that is God heard them. And this is where we just see, when we step back, we can just see the whole picture. We see Moses as part of that plan because God goes to Moses. By this time, Moses is about 80, and he's a shepherd in the mountains of Midian. And this is the story you guys might be familiar with when God appears to Moses as a burning bush, a bush that's being burned but not consumed. So it's just like an outline of fire, but there's no, I mean, uh, there's nothing falling. There's nothing withering. There's nothing being consumed by this fire. And I don't know about you, but if I'm a shepherd, uh, and you got to think about this, especially you younger guys and gals, no phones, no TV, no video games, maybe very few card games because they use papyrus and stuff like that, and you're just a shepherd watching sheep. That could be boring, especially for us now. And so you see a burning bush in the distance that's not being consumed. That's pretty interesting. I'm going to go check that out. And as Moses approaches, God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, here I am. And he says, take off your shoes for you're in a holy place. And so he does and this is Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6, and we're going to go through 15. But he, he, said, uh, he said also, this is God speaking, by the way. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses put his face, uh, hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have given heed to their cry because of the taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. 
and to bring them up from that land to a good land and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression and with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to, who, said to him, Who am I, and that I should go to Pharaoh? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. So God appears to Moses and he calls him, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I have heard them and there is a land that I have already promised to Abraham way back when. And uh, just, a little, uh, just a little recap in Genesis. God actually told Abraham that your sons will be strangers to a land and they will be slaved there for 400 years. So God already knew this was going to happen and it was a part of his plan. He told Abraham this. He said, this is what's going to happen. And so God is now saying it's time to free them. And Moses, I'm going to send you. You're going to be the one. And Moses is a little like, who am I? I mean, I know that's how I was when I was first called to ministry. Like, who, who am I to teach your word, God? I mean, I was in and out of church all, all growing up. I mean, who am I to teach? And, but no, God, if God has a plan for you, he's got a plan for you. If you want to tell God, tell him a joke. Make him laugh. Tell him your plans, because your plans don't matter. It's about his plans. And he's got plans for you, and he's going he's gonna to put you to it. But he told Moses, very important part, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now Moses at this time, uh, it goes on a little bit. We're going to look at 13 through 15. Uh, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm, if I'm going to the sons... Of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus that you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Um, I don't know what, I can't remember what translation is up there. Nate usually speaks from the ESV. Today I'm speaking from the New American Standard Bible because um, it was what I was taught in school. Uh, as central as the Bibles we used. But also, ESV says, tell him the Lord has sent you. But this one says, tell him I am has sent you. And I'm pretty sure most of us are more familiar with that phrase, I am. And I like that one a lot. I am who I am. I am has sent me. I am. God is basically saying here that I am the God. I am your God. I am forever and always. I have always been there. I will always be there. And I will be there with you. And, and Moses is asking good questions. I mean, I know when I am asked to do ministry, especially when I first started out by God through, through various things, I was like, man, are you sure? I mean, people would compliment. Like, I'd do a, I'd do a kids' devo for a youth group. 
and a lady came up to me one time. We were on a missions trip. She said, that was pretty good. You should be a youth minister. And at that time, I was thinking, ah, no, I'm not going to be a minister. What are you talking about? I want to be outside. I don't want to be in an office or anything like that. Uh-huh. A couple years later, God showed me, no, nah, I'm going to have you be a minister. And I was asking similar questions. And Moses goes on, he goes, what if, what if they don't believe me? What if they still don't believe me when I say that? And God says, fine, what is in your hand? Well, Moses at that time, just imagine this conversation. What is in your hand? Uh, a staff. It's kind of like that State Farm commercial. Who is this? Jake from State Farm. What are you wearing, Jake? Uh, khakis. It is uh, a staff. So he's like, okay, throw the staff down. And so he throws the staff down, and it turns into a snake. I don't mind snakes, but if I'm holding a stick and throw it down, it turns into a snake, I'm flipping out. Because I'm going to think of what kind of water was in that well that I am now seeing a snake where my stick used to be. And God tells him, before he can freak out too much, pick it up. So he picks it up by the tail, turns into a staff again. And he said, show them this sign. But if they still don't believe you, go ahead and stick your hand in your cloak. So he does, and he pulls it out, and it's leprosy. And for those of you who don't know leprosy, it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy disease, especially back then. I mean, there's still, unfortunately, cases of it now. But back then, it was, it was just huge in those places. It, it was a skin disease or a disease of, of the nervous system and stuff like that that started to erode your skin. And, and you, you could actually lose limbs, like your fingers would fall off or something like that. And eventually, get down to your organs and everything, and you'd die from it. And so, of course, Moses might be freaking out about that because now it's like, well, I didn't have that before. And so he puts his hand back in his cloak because God told him to, and he comes back and it's healed. And God says, it's kind of like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. He, he says, if they still don't believe you with that, go to the Nile when you're there, get some water, take it to the dry ground, pour it on the dry ground, and when that happens, it will turn to blood. Show these signs to the sons of Israel so that they will believe you. Okay, well, we're, we're getting somewhere. That's pretty undeniable about those signs. But then Moses still has more doubts. He still has more doubts, and he's, he's worried about himself. And I, I can relate to him a little bit here. I can't relate to the fact that he was 80 at this time, but I can relate to him a little bit here. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, that's the next one we're going to look at. Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow in speech and slow in tongue. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. But then Moses said to him, God answered. He delivered them. He rescued them. How that relates to us? Well, there's a chapter I skipped. Exodus chapter 12, it it talks about the Passover. And it tells them right before the last plague, the Hebrews are supposed to sacrifice. Each family is supposed to sacrifice a perfect yearling lamb and, and put the blood over the door and perform the proper sacrifice. And, and that'll tell the Spirit of God that Hebrews live there, move on to the next house while they're killing the first sons of Egypt. Um, and the reason that's important is perfect. A, a lamb without defect, a lamb without blemish. How it relates to us today is real simple. John chapter 1, verse 29. 
John the Baptist is baptizing people. And Jesus shows up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who will save us from our sin. Save the, the world from their sin. The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb, the one who is without blemish and whose blood will save us. That's how it relates for us today, too. I mean, Jesus was sacrificed during the Passover time. He was called the Lamb of God. He had the perfect blood, and he was the sacrifice for us so that we may be rescued. We may be delivered. We may not be slaves in Egypt, but we were slaves to sin. And Jesus was that perfect sacrifice who saved us and delivered us from our slavery, our brutal slavery to sin that would lead to eternal death and damnation. But he saved us. I hope you guys, I want you to think about that. Uh, That's just the main point. That's how it affects us today. We have been delivered. We are like these Hebrews, these Israelites who were enslaved. We have been saved and delivered. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for just your message. I thank you for the story, your story. I pray that we may glorify you. I pray that we may honor you, that we may remember the blood of Jesus Christ that was the saving point for us, the sacrifice, the thing that delivered us. I hope that we remember you are our deliverer, you are our redeemer, you are our rescuer. And I thank you for that. I pray that as we leave here today that we can go out and we can do your will, that we can serve you and we can teach others about you and that we can, whether it's this message or any message in the Bible, that we can share it with people. And most of all, that we can not be the slavers, but we can be your tools to free people, to show them love, to show them your grace, and to lead them to you. I thank you so much, and it is in your name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the elders to go to the back. And I will be down here in front. And I want you guys, if, you, if, if God is tugging on your heart,